Father, we do this morning rest in you and rest in your sovereign hand and your control. And as things get more unstable in different places, even in our own backyard here, that we can rest in you knowing that you are working out your plan and no matter what, that you will in fact accomplish it. And we praise you for that. And we de- we desire that you would give us faithfulness in the midst of any struggle or difficulty that we may encounter as you work out that plan. And as Jim prayed, we do desire that this passage strike us today uh, in our minds and in our hearts to be able to be better prepared to face this world that we live in, this dark world. And we desire for you give us opportunities to share with those that don't know you and to be able to have an impact upon them and to encourage the believers as well. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What I'd like to start off with today, and we're going to focus a little bit more on Israel. Not that we haven't as we've gone through all of these chapters, but I want to kind of give you a little further background because it is the direct background to this passage. So we're going to look a little bit more at all of world history, essentially, which is Jewish. We're going to look at uh, what God gave to the children of Israel even before they were a nation. But I'd like to start off just by reading. And and by the way, there's several passages I'm going to have some of you read. So if you be prepared, you Several of you can start turning to Deuteronomy. Keep your finger in Romans chapter 10. And we're going to do some reading out of uh, Deuteronomy this morning. But I want to start off with Luke chapter 21. And the reason for this, I want you to be aware of some things that Paul, he alludes to more so in chapter 11. But he alludes to in these chapters 9 through 11. And I think we've already kind of touched on a little bit of that in verse 1 of chapter 10 and elsewhere, other passages we've already looked at. Keep in mind that when Paul wrote the book of Romans, he was aware, obviously, of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Luke chapter 21, we have a very, very specific prediction concerning the nation of Israel. And I'm confident that Paul had not only this passage, but the entire, what's described as the Olivet Discourse in mind. In fact, that background photo that I use there is taken basically from the site where Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse. And if you're not familiar with the Olivet Discourse, this is Jesus' sermon, you might say, or teaching to the disciples on eschatology, or what's going to take place in the future. I think Luke focuses on uh, one incident that I think is in the back of the thinking of Paul. And he's thinking ahead. He doesn't give a date. Jesus doesn't. And Paul's not aware. But in 70 AD, I think this came about. Beginning in verse 20. But when you see, this is Jesus, Olivet Discourse. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of the city depart, and let those who are in the country enter the city. Now, the Olivet Discourse in general, and particularly Matthew's Gospel, looks ahead even beyond the church age. But this passage may have a double fulfillment, in 70 A.D. and then beyond. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the details of that eschatology, but if you have 70 A.D. in mind as you read this passage, I think I think this is what uh, Jesus is communicating. 22, but because these are days of vengeance in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled, woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babies in those days for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people who is this people the jewish people the nation of israel that's the context 
And then the last verse I'll read here, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. Not Babylon. This is after. This is future. This is first century. All the nations. That's why this is very specific. Matthew doesn't focus so specifically in his account. You'll be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple, and obviously the destruction of the nation of Israel that did in fact, not entirely, but in large measure, took place 70 AD. There was a later revolt that was put down that kind of ended Israel's uh, dominance or prominence, I might say, in, in the land of Israel. And Israel from 70 AD has been spread throughout all the nations. And it wasn't until 1948 that they regathered. Now, Paul, I think, has some of these eschatological ideas in mind. And when he's describing things pertaining to Israel, some of this underlies some of the teaching that he has here. So, He's speaking, obviously, to people in the city of Rome. They would have been familiar with these archaeological remains from the first century. In fact, some of these even way before the first century. Believers would have uh, had conversation, even fellowship, contact with the Roman Empire in uh, the area here. This is one of the areas that we visited. And Paul, in this most significant of books, the book of Romans, is laying out how man can have a relationship with God. God has provided his very own righteousness so that men can come into a relationship with himself. And in the first century, many were responding to that message. In fact, mainly Gentiles were responding. There were a few Jews in fact, most of the Jews early on, or most of the believers that were responding were Jewish, but as time went on, and by the time the book of Romans was written, the gospel had spread through most of the Roman Empire already, primarily through the ministry of Paul. But there is a contingent of Jewish believers and Gentile believers that have to understand the relationship between the nation of Israel now now that Jesus Christ has come and died on the cross and satisfied the provisions of the law that men could come into a relationship, he's going to answer the question, what about the nation of Israel? What's their place? So he's going to vindicate God's righteousness. And if you haven't figured it out already, the theme of God's righteousness runs through the entire book of Romans. So there's three parts. We've already looked at part one where he traces the beginnings of the nation of Israel and shows that not every person that is a descendant of Abraham is, in fact, true Israel. That's the phrase that he uses, or the idea. And he deals with this concept of God being elect or chosen, a chosen people. We're going to see some of those passages in Deuteronomy. And God has, obviously, a plan for them and has chosen them. So Israel chosen, that's the focus, sovereignly by God's hand. He's laying the groundwork to explain why Israel is going to be set aside. And now God has others that are also chosen outside of the nation of Israel. We're in the section beginning in chapter 9, verse 30 through the end of chapter 10 that uh, emphasizes the rejection of Israel. And Israel is not abandoned forever not uh, replaced by the church, even though that's a doctrine that some hold to. I think it's a false doctrine, replacement theology. But Israel instead is under God's discipline for a time frame, and this became very evident at 70 AD, which was still future from the writing of the book of Romans. But it's not a complete rejection in that chapter 11 tells us that Israel will be restored and that all of Israel will, in fact, experience salvation. And that's one of the words that Paul uses. Next week, we're going to camp on that word to set the stage for not only chapter 10, but also chapter 11.
So he's explaining this to show that we're living in an era where Jew and Gentile can come into a relationship to God on the same basis, based on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a distinction in terms of access. There's always a distinction in terms of the details of God's plan, and God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. But in terms of this age, the church age, God is bringing together Jew and Gentile. So that is explained in that passage. Israel as God's chosen people, some main issues that he deals with. Are they still God's chosen people? And I've been emphasizing that there's nothing in the text that says that they've been replaced or that they've been abandoned. Certainly disciplined for a temporary period of time, but uh, they're still God's chosen people, and God will fulfill everything that he has promised, all of the covenants. But the question would have been asked in the first century, well, why are there so few within Israel? Now, this is later, after the church was founded and the gospel had gone out to Gentiles, and almost an overwhelming response amongst the Gentiles in terms of those responding to this gospel message of Paul, and it seemed like fewer and fewer within the nation of Israel. And certainly, even after the uh, dispersion, few Jewish people responding to the, the gospel message. So how do you explain this? What's going on? Now, we're going to have more details in chapter 11 in terms of what is happening with uh, unbelieving Israel today, and you can even see it today. So the gospel going to the Gentiles, is this biblical? Has the word of God failed? Paul answered that question. Gentiles coming to God apart from the law, how can that be? The emphasis of the Old Testament is the importance of the law, the importance within Israel of the law. That's partly explained and we've dealt with that. And the emphasis now, we've talked about God sovereignly working in Israel through his plan of choosing a people, and now in the church age, extending that, but now he's going to take the next major step. There's a plan. Some of it has been revealed for the very first time in the writings of the early church, the primarily Paul, Ephesians, for example, chapter 3. Some of these things are a mystery, never revealed before of this plan, but it also involves the other side of the coin as well, man's response or man's responsibility. So that's the focus of chapter 9, beginning in verse 30 through the end of chapter 10. I've been stressing that. We stress the sovereign elective plan in chapter 9 through verse 29, and now we're stressing the responsibility of Israel. So we've already seen three failures on the part of the nation of Israel They are disciplined not only because God has this bigger plan that includes Gentiles, but because in uh, the responsibility of Israel, they have failed. So he lays the responsibility on them as well. Failure in pursuit of righteousness. We saw that chapter 9, verse 30-33. A failure to know the perfections of God. The particular one is the righteousness of God of God. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God. Instead, they have reduced God to the human level and think that they can reach God by pursuing righteousness on the basis of their own efforts. And uh, that's a false concept. It's normal. It's natural. Everyone has that, Jew and Gentile. And it is epitomized amongst the uh, Jewish people, and you see it throughout the Old Testament, you see it in the first century, but it stems, first of all, from a misunderstanding of God himself. And when I say the perfections, not just the righteousness of God, but the, the glory of God, the nature of God. And man's tendency is to reduce God such that he is more familiar to us as opposed to the description of God as separate and totally holy, totally perfect, totally set apart, and that man has no way of approaching such a perfect and holy God. The only way is through what God has provided, and there's no human means. So Israel failed in its beginning, 
And then they fail to realize the purpose of the law. We saw that at the end of our study last time. The purpose ended in Christ in terms of reaching righteousness or achieving righteousness. The law pointed to Christ. The purpose of the law is to reveal that we are incapable of reaching God, that we do not have it within ourselves. We need God's provision, and throughout the Old Testament, he's promised a provision, even beginning in Genesis 3.15, that he will provide a seed or a descendant of the woman that will deal, that's not crystal clear, but he will deal with the issue of sin, and we see the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And all of these elements, the righteousness of God and the attaining of righteousness ends in Jesus Christ. And that's where the the law points us is to Christ. So now he's going to expand upon that. And this is just an expansion of the chart, vindication of righteousness, 9 through 11. We saw the past sovereign election of Israel. Chapter 9 through verse 29, now we're looking at the present national rejection, the end of chapter 9 through the end of chapter 10, and there's a perversion in attaining righteousness, that's essentially the end of 9 through the 13th verse of chapter 10. We can break that one down, we saw that Israel pursued but stumbled over the stumbling block, that's a messianic prediction of the Messiah that they stumbled over. Fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In fact, it's used in the New Testament quite often, that passage. Jesus first uses it. He's the stumbling block. He's also the cornerstone to this new structure. And then we Can saw... I a question at this point? Go ahead. Uh, on verse 4, uh, something you said uh, triggered this question. On uh, verse 4, where it says that Christ is the end, uh, I haven't looked at that. In the, in the original, but the, does the end mean it's the fulfillment, or does it mean it's the end in terms of this? Well, we uh, yeah, we looked at the, that in some detail last time, and there, the word telos, basically, if it's relating to time, it has kind of a temporal time element. So some commentators look at it from that perspective as Christ fulfilling the law, and he did. He did not end it temporally in terms of it being, let's say, totally abolished. There were there are elements of it that he did, but I don't think that's necessarily verse 4, the stress of Paul. Now, uh, now I see in my notes you said to reach a goal, to show our need for the Messiah. Yeah, and I think that's more of the element, and what he's showing here is you need to take the whole, the whole, whole verse at least I think. The end of the law, the four there, it's not guard, it's ace. It's unto righteousness. In other words, he's the end of the law unto righteousness. In other words, there's no other means, there's no other way. It's not through the law. It's not through obedience of the law. Christ is the end of the path or the pursuit for righteousness. It all ends in Christ and what Christ did on the cross. Now he's going to expand upon that. Beginning in verse 5. Does that clarify for you? Well, yeah, I'm glad to, that you reminded, at least for me, I'm glad you reminded us of that. Well, uh, you're probably not the only one, and everybody's clapping in the background. You just, they're, they're muted, so you can't hear them. Okay. Can you hear the applause? I can hear you. No, but thank you. Okay. <laughs> so, We looked at chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. We completed that last time. In fact, that's where we left off. We saw Israel had a problem in perceiving the righteousness of God. I've kind of abbreviated it there just because of space. They had a problem in perceiving or understanding. That's the word epigenosis. In other words, a spiritual or a deep knowledge. They had a surface understanding. They they knew passages of the law that spoke of God's righteousness. They were familiar with the Psalms. They were familiar with the description in the Pentateuch of the righteousness of God, but it didn't penetrate. It wasn't epigenosis. It wasn't knowledge that penetrated in terms of their hearts and their minds and their spirits. So there's a problem in perceiving And now we're going to focus on 5 through 13. We'll only get to about verse 8 today. 
the problem in accessing that righteousness that Christ is the end of. And we touched on verse 5 last time, beginning 5 through 8, that righteousness is available. That's the thrust of those those verses, four verses, 5 through 8. It's available. There's two means of accessing it, righteousness of the law. So he's going to go to the law, take us to Leviticus. And in verse 5, we looked at this. For Moses writes, so in verse 5, Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. So he's talking about Moses. If you were a Jewish person and the few little parts of the verse that he uh, includes here, your mind as a good Jewish student and follower of Moses And in the synagogue, you'd remember reading this passage or having it read. Your mind would go immediately to Leviticus 18.5. We looked at that last time. So I gave you some background. Leviticus is part of the Mosaic Law that was given at Mount Sinai. Mosaic Law. The law is not for the purpose of salvation, let's say, or for the purpose of gaining a relationship with God. I stressed that is the exodus. Israel's salvation experience is epitomized, and the focus of the Old Testament is the exodus. Mount Sinai is to a redeemed people. How do you live now? Now that you're redeemed, that's the law. And he gives so much detail to overwhelm the Jewish person, to force him to realize, I can't do all that stuff. There's too many laws, too many too many details, too many stipulations. And even if there were only ten, I couldn't even do those ten, the Ten Commandments. So the law is to drive the Israelite to their knees, to in fact even beg for the mercy of a righteous God. And how do we live? Before a holy God. That's the Mosaic law. So we saw that 18, 1 through 5, living in the land and how do you receive blessing? You want to receive God's blessing on the basis of the covenant, then you obey the covenant. But in terms of reaching righteousness, it's frustrating. If you wanted to reach righteous standing before God, it's not by the law. The law is designed to bless you living in the land, but you need regeneration first. Now you have to read between the lines, and you have to kind of put together lots of passages in the Old Testament to get that. Paul is going to do some of that as we look at verse 6 and on, and we'll talk a little bit about it in a moment. So that's kind of the context. So a righteousness which is based on the law means that you must live by that law. You must live out that righteousness of the law. And there's some clear passages, even in Deuteronomy, that shows us that this is an impossibility. Would somebody, if you've already looked it up, somebody read Deuteronomy 27 and verse 26. Would somebody else look up Galatians 3, the New Testament kind of commentary on the Old Testament? This is Paul. And somebody else look up Philippians 3.9. The stress in these verses, now you could even include here the James passage that says that if you violate even one aspect of the law, it's the same as violating the entire law. Those are the standards. If you want to meet the standard, uh, God's righteous standard of obedience through the law, then perfection is required. And if you fail at one point, then uh, you have essentially violated the whole law. So who's got Deuteronomy 27, 26? And who's got Galatians? We've got a couple of readers here. I've got Galatians. Okay. Who's got Philippians? I have Deuteronomy. Okay. Philippians. All right. Go ahead, uh, Katie. Why don't you read Deuteronomy 27, 26. And, and by the way, there are several other passages like this. This is probably the clearest. Okay. 
Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say amen. Okay. What happens if you fail at one place in the law? All of it. You're cursed. You're under a curse. And it's not till Jesus Christ comes, David, Galatians 3. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. And he's talking, he's talking about the Deuteronomy curse that's announced in 2726. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Okay. So if you want to live on the basis of the law, you're under the curse. And if you fail at one point, you have intensified that curse. Philippians 3.9. That's Nate, I think. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And that's the gospel of Paul, that it's apart from the law. In fact, we saw that in the book of Romans. The righteousness that comes from God has to come apart from the law because no one can maintain the law. No one can live a perfect life, and that's what is required. God is a holy God. His standards are beyond human capability. All of us, Jew and Gentile. Now, Deuteronomy deals with the Jewish Jewish people. But Jew and Gentile. If the Jew is under a curse, then how much more the Gentile? Go ahead, Steve. Hey, Ray, uh, I've heard you talk a little bit about the word curse. Could you expand on curse? It sounds like curse is a pretty harsh word, isn't it? It's a pretty harsh word. It has the idea of condemnation, basically, or under condemnation. You could substitute that word for the, the word curse, cursed there. So if, if you violate any aspect of the law, you are under the condemnation of God that calls for judgment. Does that clarify? Ray, that goes along with uh, verse 13 in Galatians 3. You got it, Handy? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That's good. I'm glad you read that. Thank you. Because that goes along with what Paul is saying in Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law in that he bore the curse on our behalf. Because we could not. We could not lift that condemnation. We could not release ourselves from that condemnation. Only the finished work of Jesus Christ. I should have included that on the slide. I think I'll revise the slide there. Thanks for picking that up there, David. So, that's righteousness by the law. And, unfortunately, this is what Israel has attempted to do. We saw that already. They tried to substitute their righteousness by lowering God to their level and saying God grades on the curve, God doesn't take sin seriously, we are able to superficially obey the law, that's good enough. And what Paul is saying, no. And I think what he has in the back of his thinking are passages like the ones that we just read. If you want to live that way, then you have to live by the law and take into account what James says. Violate one part of it, you violate it all. Violate one part of it, you're under condemnation. You're under the curse. But there's an alternative, and this is what he's arguing, and this is what Israel missed And because he's writing to a Jewish audience, he wants those Jews that have received this righteousness to have this clearly in their thinking as they reach out to their fellow Jewish people. So now, 6 through 8, he's going to talk about the righteousness by faith. And this is an interesting passage in that it's not a direct quote. It almost seems, and I'll show you because we're going to go to a few passages here. They're all out of Deuteronomy. He seems to string together not even a single verse in Deuteronomy. He almost is taking phrases or wording from 
a few passages. And, and some of these passages, for example, I think the first one, in fact, if somebody's prepared to read, go all the way to chapter, chapter 9. And we're going to read a passage there, and then we're going to look at some uh, in chapter 7. So I'd like for a few of you to be prepared to read a few passages in Deuteronomy. To kind of set the stage, now, the first one we're going to read, and then we'll expand it, and then we're going to later on come to another one in chapter 30, but the first one comes out of chapter 9, Deuteronomy 9. Do we have some readers ready? What verse? Have it. Oh. Yeah, we'll have Linda read the first one, and then I'll have you, uh, David, read, be in chapter 7, and would somebody turn to chapter 10, somebody else chapter 14, and we'll pick up from there. So, let me give you kind of a little background here. But the righteousness, notice it says, the righteousness based on faith, so he's contrasting, but there's an alternative. In fact, there has to be. Without this alternative... Everyone remains under a curse. And it's a righteousness based on faith. And he's assuming that you still have verse 4 in mind. Christ is the end of this path or this pursuit. And it's faith upon him taking on that curse of the verse that we read in uh, Galatians 3.13. So, This is the alternative. The alternative, righteousness based on faith, speaks as follows. Now, it's interesting. Most often, Paul will say, the scripture says. Or, what did he say in verse 5? Moses says. Or, if he's quoting out of Isaiah, remember in chapter 9, he says, Isaiah says. And very interestingly, he says, the righteousness based on, on faith, almost personifying this righteousness. In other words, it's centered in a person, and this person speaks. Going back, I think he's expanding verse 4. You could even say the end of the law is speaking here. The one that brings this righteousness is speaking here. The one upon whom this righteousness that is based on faith speaks here. In other words, Jesus himself is speaking as follows. And now he's going to take us to the Deuteronomy passage. And if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9, or listen as, was it Katie there that's reading verse? No, Linda. Or Linda, rather. Look at verse 9. 9 Okay, 9 Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Notice he just takes, let me interrupt you, notice he he just takes a phrase, do not say in your heart. Most of the commentators trace it back to this. It could be another place where the wording is very similar, but I think what Paul is doing is he's saying, okay, this righteousness based on faith, even Deuteronomy touches on it. And I think he takes us to verse 9, or uh, chapter 9, verse 4. And if you look at verse 4, what he's already talking about here is the concept of not works, but the concept of grace and the concept of receiving by grace. So he's going to give a little bit of their, their history in terms of God bringing them through the Exodus into a redemptive relationship. Read it again. Start over again and look at that verse. And notice what he reminds them of. It's not because of anything in them. It's not because they're such an obedient people or such a superior people over all of the Egyptians or the nations that they're brought into the land of Canaan. Not because of that. It's because of God's grace. Read it again, Linda. Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you. That's the Canaanites. Because because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me into possession to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is exposing them before you. Okay. Notice a couple of things there. Because of my righteousness, it's his righteousness. And it's not based on anything in them. 
If anything, it's based on the evil and sinfulness of the occupants of the land. And if you were Jewish, your mind, some of you Jewish ones would have had it memorized and you would have gone to chapter 9 and remembered what God said there. Read verse 5 as well. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God basically is fulfilling a plan, and remember, this is an unconditional, gracious plan, the Abrahamic covenant, and it's on the basis of God's own righteousness, faithfulness to his promise to Abraham, not on anything in the nation of Israel. Now, just so that you get get the feel here, this is a theme that underlies all of Deuteronomy. Turn back to chapter 7. Who's got... Uh, okay, read 6 through 8. And notice the, the same gracious flavor. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. Now, a set-apart people by God. Uh, he's not saying you are such good, pleasant, holy people, righteous people. You are a set-apart people by God. Go ahead. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are on the face of the earth. That's grace. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, but you were the fewest of all people. So not not because of you guys. You know, you guys were such a mighty, uh, what's the word, um, attractive, startling people. Not because of you. He focuses more on the numbers here. But notice the choosing. This is sovereign grace. This is sovereign election. Not because of anything in you. Read verse 8. But because the Lord loved you. Grace. Because you eat the oath which he swore unto your fathers. Hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. All of that grace. All of that not because of anything in them. See the thrust there? So, that's the righteousness based on faith. That's part of the message. Let's read a couple more. Uh, ten, does somebody have 10.15? Who's got that one? Anyone? Just uh, Deuteronomy? Yep. 10.15. Uh, I got it. 10.15. Uh, yep. On your fathers did the Lord set his affection. Them. He chose their descendants after them. Even you above all peoples as it is this day. Okay. God's choice. God chose them. And he chose to pour his affection upon them. Now, it doesn't stress like it did in 7 and 9. It had nothing to do with them, but that's the implication. This follows. In other words, if you've already read chapters 7, 8, and 9, you understand that this is grace. God's okay. grace. That passage, that last Old Testament passage, what was it? Ten, fifteen. Thank you. Fourteen two. You got that one, Connie? Since you're on, or who's got it? Somebody got it? If not, go ahead, Connie. Fourteen two. Okay, fourteen two. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the. Okay, that's grace. God's the one that has initiated everything for Israel, not them. It's not their choice, God's choice. And there's lots of other passages as well that gives you a sampling. And you see this underlying all of the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, part of the law, but there's lots of grace and love. Go ahead, Jim. So, uh, going back to Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, reminds me of that. And obviously... What we've read here is a pretty powerful argument. I think that God chose to love Israel uh, not out of any lovable aspect. Exactly. Yep. And he also chose to dispossess the occupants of the land because of their wickedness. 
that's really clear. It's very powerful. Yeah. I'd have to say. Uh, so we haven't gotten to man's responsibility yet, have we? No, we, 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 we have. We, we've, okay. we've gotten into the thick of it. Okay. We're, well, I can hardly wait. Well, verse Thank five, you. yeah, verse five gave you a, a little bit yeah, of it. I just also, oh, I just want to also make another comment based upon that, what Jim said. Yeah. So, I, for me and for many of us, that I think that answers a lot of questions about um, why uh, God chose to dispossess um, the Canaanites, well, in Canaan, and uh, you know whether or not, hey, that was unfair that these people, you know, why did uh, the Jews just come in and take their land, and you know we still see that today. And um, yep, this is very clear as to the reason why. Yep, and that's only part of the reason. There's a lot of other reasons as well. But yeah, very good, very good. So let's take a look at the context of Deuteronomy. Let me remind you, this is the second generation. Remember, the first generation of the Exodus died out after the 40 years. And Deuteronomy is written after that second generation died out. And he's preparing them to enter the land. And I say this because we're going to look at another passage. In fact, I, here's the verses that I we just looked up. But we're going to begin looking at the next part of the passage that comes out of Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And like I said, these are not necessarily exact quotes. They're more kind of phrases or concepts that Paul pulls out of them to kind of support the idea that even in Deuteronomy, God is a gracious God. God is a God of that calls upon us to believe, and some of these verses come out of chapter 30, but let's take a look. Let's take a real quick look. In these passages, 28 through 30, I see God predicting all of Israel's future history, and this is before they're even a nation. And by the way, if you want to jot down, jot down Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 parallels everything that we have here. It's briefer, but it parallels the same history, the same summary of what will be the outcome of the nation of Israel. And if you remember, Leviticus is written to the first generation. So Moses is repeating to the second generation before they even enter the land, before they're a full-fledged nation. They're just a people. They're just a bunch of motley tribes. They're not a nation until they have the land after Joshua. Then they're a full-fledged nation. So God predicts their entire history even before they enter the land, even before they're even a nation. And I'm going to give you this background because it'll help us to understand what he's saying in the passage, so let's let's do this as quickly as we can. This is a preview of Israel's history, and I just take these notes out of my eschatology notes so that you can have this quick history. Those of you that are reading, start with verse uh, chapter twenty-eight. Read verse one and two. Well enough. Got it. Go ahead. Now, now it shall be if you will. will Diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Now remember, they're not even, they're not even a nation yet. And he's talking about when they enter the land, when God gives them the land. Read verse 2. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you will obey the Lord your God. Okay, there's a condition there. But he has blessing upon blessing upon blessing. If you review the history of Israel, there were times where they experienced some of these blessings. And there will be a future time when every one of these blessings they will experience in the future. And he goes on and he lists many areas. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. 
your offspring, you'll have many offspring and healthy offspring. He'll deal with health. He'll deal with international relations. He'll deal with climatology. He'll deal with agriculture. So he goes through all this list if they obey. But what? There's discipline if they disobey. And there's more examples in the history of Israel where they experience everything that you have in the rest of chapter 28. Would somebody read verse 15 and 16? They shall cut it. They'll come to pass. Thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to do and observe and to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I commanded thee to this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Cursed shalt thou be in the city in the field. And he kind of almost parallels what he said in the first 14 verses. In fact, he expands it. And if you read the rest of the chapter, lots of detail. And you can tie many events in the history of the nation of Israel to Deuteronomy 28. In fact, that's one of the emphasis of the the Old Testament prophets. They interpret the experiences of Israel because they have violated the covenant. So, lots of discipline as a result of disobedience. Somebody trying to comment there, Linda? Or somebody? Nope. Notice, he sees that disobedience is going to be the prominent feature, and uh, that disobedience is eventually going to lead to exile and destruction of the nation. Somebody read uh, verse 36 and 37 of Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you, whom you set over you, to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. Notice, Deuteronomy, there weren't kings. It's not till you get to First Samuel that you have the first king, then you have David, and then you have Solomon, then you have the kings, and then you have the degeneration of the kings. He's looking down the road here. Keep reading. What were those yeah. verses... Uh, wait a minute, what, what were those verses? 36 and 37 that Pat is reading. Okay, uh, I noticed just a, one thing to notice there too. Uh, the exile comes about really uh, for the same reason that the Canaanites were, uh, uh, you know, dispossessed in the first place. Yes, exactly. So Very he's good. Not, he's not treating them any differently. Right, right. Go ahead, Pat. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people, for the Lord drives you. Now that happened with the Assyrian captivity of the ten, king, to the ten nations of the north, or t- ten tribes of the north. And then it happened uh, 586, when the Babylonians not only scattered, but took them captive. And I think... Eventually, in the first century, that has a, you might say, a an allusion to. Somebody read 41, same chapter, and then skip to 45. Who's got it? Thou shalt beget sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. Captivity. This is even before they're a nation. He predicts captivity. Skip to 45 and read 45, 46. Six. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon thee, and shall pursue thee, and overtake thee, till thou be destroyed, because thou hearkest not unto the voice of the Lord, to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded thee, and they shall be upon thee for a sign and a wonder, and upon thy seed forever. Okay. Now, the destruction there is going to be explained in the following verses. It's not a complete In fact, he's going to talk about a remnant in here. And just for your notes, you might read even more, read it all the way to verse 48. We won't read it here, but it talks the end there until he has destroyed you there. See the end of verse 48? For your notes, you can include 63 through 68 of the same passage. And he's talking about exile and captivity there. Now skip to chapter 30. Ray, could I interrupt? Yeah, always. Um, Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm having, I was having some difficulty in understanding. He chose them, but they had no great qualities, but he didn't choose others that had no great qualities. In fact, everyone was wicked or evil, and God chose them out of grace. Not, so, 
So we are kind of still alluding to some aspects, it seems, of good and evil in saying they were wicked, but these people got chosen, making a kind of a distinction that's perhaps not true. You can talk to me about that. The second thing I notice is at the beginning of 28, he talks about do these things, but then in the middle he says listen and obey. And I'm wondering if that isn't the distinction, rather than being good and evil, the ones that listen to God and respond, and we just read it again in that verse, the listening and responding was um, what they did in the garden originally until another voice came. And then they broke their relationship with God. And so they were not obedient anymore. They were obedient to the wrong voice. And so I think we go over, skip over the listening, responding to God, and we move right on to their actions. It wasn't eating the apple that killed them. It was listening to the other voice and following that one. So there's my thought. You can okay. deny or... No, I, I think I think overall I don't have a problem with any of it. The first part, that's kind of the definition of grace. It's not that Israel deserved or there was anything in them that they were not any different in in quality, you might say, or character than the Canaanites. That's sovereign grace. God chose them for his own purposes. We don't understand all of it, and sometimes we have a hard time with it. But Israel did not deserve to be chosen. No one ever deserves to be chosen. They deserve to be treated like the Canaanites. But when we talk about blessing, blessing, in other words, if you want to enjoy the benefits of, of the family, it's dependent on obedience. Okay? Okay, destruction. Uh, I'm running out of time here. In chapter 30, and this is the place where we'll get back to chapter 10 in the book of Romans, because here's where the passage comes out of. But before we get to the passage that Paul takes phrases out of, notice that there's also a restoration. And I think Romans is going to build upon this idea as well. And you could read most of the chapter, but let's start. Somebody read the first two verses of chapter 30, Deuteronomy 30. So it shall be when all... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Linda. Go ahead. Go ahead, Linda, and then we'll have Steve read the next passage. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all peoples where the Lord as God has scattered you. Now, I think that looks ultimately, that looks ultimately to even future from our time. Now, there was a partial restoration from Babylon after the 70-year exile in order to prepare for the coming of Messiah, but Israel rejected their Messiah, and 70 A.D. was scattered. And I think this talks about the regathering after 70 A.D. Now, you can keep reading, and he's going to give more details concerning this restoration In fact, it even includes a judgment upon the nations. We won't look at that if you want to jot down verse 7. And he continues with ultimate blessings of the kingdom in verses 8 through 10. And that'll take us back. And let's see how far we can get. We're running out of time here. Where we have, back in in, uh, Romans, Moses, well, in Deuteronomy, Moses is going to die. And what he is leaving with the children of Israel is God's word, God's revelation. Not only the book of Deuteronomy, but what was revealed on Mount Sinai. And Paul is going to take from chapter 30, 12 to 13, the passage that we have in in Romans. And I'm going to go over this quickly and try to summarize it. And here's where we'll pick up next time. So, 
who will ascend into heaven. Interesting little phrase in Deuteronomy. In fact, if you're still in Deuteronomy, would somebody read verse 10? 30, 10? If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Notice, this is in a context of being scattered, so they don't have a temple. They can't do everything that the law requires. He is calling upon them, even before they initially enter the land, to call upon the name of the Lord. And this is part of what he's talking about in the the, the book of Romans. Since you're reading, Steve, skip down to verse 11 and 12. Notice the commandment. Go ahead. For For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. Read 13. Go ahead, read 13. And nor is it beyond nor is it beyond say, say, who will be for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. Now, Paul doesn't quote exactly those two verses, but in 6 and 7, he seems to pull these ideas And he's going to apply them to uh, the Romans. I wanted to say the children of Israel, but to, to the Romans in the first century. And essentially, when he says, who will ascend into heaven? This phraseology comes here in the context of Israel calling upon the name of the Lord. What he's emphasizing here. Is this righteousness that is based on faith, it's not far away. You don't have to go to the heavens to bring anything down. He may even be alluding to, you don't have to go up to Mount Sinai to bring the word down, or go to God to bring these things down. And then he's going to give an application to the first century. He's not saying that this fulfills Deuteronomy He's just, I think, drawing an application. That is, in other words, in the first century, you don't have to bring Christ down. Why don't you have to bring Christ down in the context of Romans? He's already been down. Yeah, he's already come down. So he's applying. You don't have to ascend. Now, in Deuteronomy, he may be alluding to Sinai, that eventually going to heaven or to God himself to bring the word down, but in the first century, that is, in other words, I'm applying here, I'm applying this concept, you don't have to bring Christ down, because he already came down. The incarnation has already taken place. The Messiah has already arrived. This righteousness by faith is near you. It was amongst you. It was present. You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to do some miraculous work. And then verse 7, or who will descend into the abyss? Now, there's a little wording that has changed here. The abyss in the New Testament seems to be the place of confinement for demonic spirits. And then in the future of Satan himself. So you don't have to go to the extent of going to the impossible in the upward direction in heaven or the impossible descending into the lower parts of the earth. And I think what he's using here is synonymous language. If you take all of the phrases from Deuteronomy and the usages of the Hebrew words and the Greek words of the Old Testament and the New Testament, he's basically talking about the place of confinement of the dead and perhaps demonic spirits. Could be a synonym for Sheol. You don't have to go. Because you can't, for one thing, and now he's going to apply, and he uses the little phrase again, same phrase. That is, in other words, he takes from Deuteronomy, descending to the bottom of the deep or the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Why can't you need to do that? He's already been raised from the dead. 
So essentially, what he's saying to the first century, Christ, is the Messiah has come, the incarnation. You don't have to go searching. You don't have to do some miraculous work. You don't have to obey the law to gain a standing. In fact, you can't a standing before God, nor do you need to go down in the impossible to the abyss. If you went down there, you'd never come back, and it would gain nothing anyway. But the bottom line, the application, and what he's saying here, the ascending is for the incarnation in Deuteronomy, the abyss, fallen angels, lost souls. That is, for the second time, Christ, to bring Christ up from the dead, because he has already raised for the dead. The point he's making here, we have in verse 8, but what does it say? And here's the point that he's driving at. The word is near you. In fact, in your mouth and in your heart. It's not distant. Now that comes from Deuteronomy as well. We don't have time to look up that verse. It could be Deuteronomy or a combination of one of the Psalms. That word is near you. It's not remote. You don't have to do these extraordinary things of going to the heavens or going down into the abyss. It's there. It's available is essentially what he's talking about here. It's available to Jew and Gentile. And in this context, the emphasis is on the Gentile. Well, we didn't quite get through the end of verse 8, but that's a good place. We'll pick up verse 8 there next time. Any comments or questions on that? Does that make sense? See what he's saying? Yes. Yes. And was it helpful to see where he's pulling these verses out? He's talking to the Jewish people in a context of captivity, anticipating and waiting for deliverance, waiting for redemption, the ultimate and the final redemption that will be detailed in chapter 11. So in the Old Testament, Israel, he's predicting that they will go into captivity, and if they call upon the name of the Lord, they will receive salvation. He's going to develop these themes in uh, Romans chapter 10 as we get in further into the text. Other comments before we... Uh... Ray? Yeah. Uh, the, this is in response to the comments on hearing the word or hearing the Lord and responding that was made earlier. Um, the word is hearken. Mm-hmm. And it's translated into Hebrew shama, which involves not just hearing, but obedience. Obedience. And it also would include a heart response. Correct. Correct. Not and, something we could do in our own strength. Right. And we know from the New Testament exactly that uh, a heart response is a response in the power of the Holy Spirit. Correct. Very good. Okay. Go ahead. Who's that, Katie? I'm in an, uh, uh, yes. Hi, I'm in an apologetics group that meets every week, and we've been discussing the prosperity gospel and how, um, you know, uh, scripture is just so mistreated. Our, we, we read ourselves into the text instead of focusing on the context. And when we were reading through Deuteronomy 28, the promise of blessings, I can see how, um, the, the word has been perverted to, uh, read us into it when this is nothing to do with us. This is Israel. Israel. So, in, um, Israel in the land. Yeah, I, I, Israel in the land. And I, so I just really, uh, really appreciate your um, studying of the word, the context, the original language, and um, and you know just communicating the truth. And I just pray that um, the truth is communicated more in America, and we kind of stand up and uh, say, hey, you know, that's not contextual. That's 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 reading something in that that isn't even there. It doesn't doesn't make sense. So yeah. um, I, I really do appreciate that. Well, so. pra- praise the Lord. And since your mic is open, do you want to either you or your mic close for us? Sure. I'll, I'll go ahead. Okay. Uh, dear Lord. Dear Lord, I, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for Ray um, and his dedication to uh, 
just delivering your word um, just so clearly so we can not only understand the truth, but um, apply it to our lives and um, share it with others, too, that you really are our only hope, and it's not it's not up to us. It's nothing we can do, but it's what's already been done. And we can rest in that. And, um, Lord, I just, I thank you for doing it all for us already. Um, I just pray for our nation, pray for our leaders, pray for those who are persecuted around the world. And, um, I just pray that we continue to, to stand firmly on your word and the promises that you have already fulfilled and the ones that are to come. So thank you so much for your word, Lord, and uh, for the, the believers on here to meet together and um, just enjoy being with one another virtually. And um, thank you for, for all of your blessings, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. A closing thought. Thank you. Closing thought. We have an adequate and complete canon of the word of faith. It's near. It's near us. Any final goodbyes before we leave? We went a little bit over time today, but uh, I don't have to go anywhere, and I don't know, some of you may have to go. Thank you, Ray. Thanks, Ray. Thank you, Ray. Thank you all. See you next week. Hi, Ray. It's Denise. Go ahead. Um, I, I just wanted to make the comment regarding the fact that Israel had to receive by faith what Jesus has done. They had received what Aaron, as the high priest, had done. And so now they have to receive by faith what Jesus has done because he's changed from the priesthood of the Aaronic benediction to that of the mess, uh, the, let me say it, the Melchizedek, (laughs) sorry, uh, the, the Melchizedek priesthood. And that's who we as believers recognize Jesus is the fulfillment of the Melchizedek kingdom. Yes. Christ is the end of the law in a lot of ways. The stress in Romans is in terms of access to righteousness. Okay. Any other goodbyes or comments? Bye, everyone. Have a great week. Bye. See you, you, Sharon.